thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Cape Talk. WhatsApp Kino. 072-567-1567. And a very good morning to you. Welcome to today. Kino with you all the way through until midday. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Chris, great to have you on the show. Uh, um, dare I ask you what you're going to be doing on Valentine's Day? Well, you know what? Because it's a Valentine's Day program, do you remember a few weeks ago we were asked if yeah. I have a block of coal how big a diamond can I make from the coal? Because I've heard yes. the diamonds yes. are made from coal, carbon, effectively. Well, I said yeah. I was going to talk to a very clever materials scientist, and she would sort it out for me. Megan McGregor, who yeah. works with The Naked Scientist, has done this for me. She has made the piece. And, of course, the relevance to today is some people will almost inevitably pop the question today. And what you're going to do, you're going to do it with a diamond, of course. So the question we were asked is... How big would the diamond be if I made all of the carbon in a piece of coal into a diamond? Here it is. We first need to get the carbon out of the coal and into a usable form. One way to do this is by burning the coal, which converts the carbon within to carbon dioxide. Around 70% of the weight of a lump of coal is carbon that we can access this way, according to the Environment Agency. So if you take a lump of coal destined for the fireplace that weighs around 20 grams, 14 grams of that weight is carbon atoms. This means that if we completely burned the lump of coal and captured all of the carbon dioxide emitted, it would contain 14 grams of carbon that we could potentially use to make a diamond. Scientists have managed to grow diamonds in a lab using a mixture of carbon dioxide gas and hydrogen along with some very high temperatures via a process known as chemical vapour deposition. This process allows deposition of carbon atoms on the surface of a very small existing diamond, increasing its size. If we used our captured carbon dioxide from the coal and successfully added every single one of the carbon atoms to our starter diamond, it would give you four cubic centimetres of diamond. That's just over three quarters of a teaspoon. And that would be about a 70 carat diamond. Unfortunately, this all assumes 100% efficiency at all stages, which is pretty far from reality. So capturing the carbon dioxide from your fire probably isn't the future of diamond mining. I love the fact that uh, we're also into using it. teaspoons as SI units of diamond size now. But that was Megan McGregor, who's from material science at the University of Cambridge. So there's your answer. A very big diamond, about three, qu- three quarters of a teaspoonful. But Chris, what, here's a question. What exactly physically is the feeling of love that you feel in your body, including the tingling in your tummy, the feeling of butterflies, is the first question that's come through this morning. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not sure if you can help us with that one. Yeah. Well, when, we, when we're excited about things, this initiates in your body your fight or flight reaction. And your fight or flight reaction is your autonomic nervous system, the part of the nervous system that you don't have to think about, which does jobs for you, almost like autopilot in an aeroplane. And 
The fight-or-flight reaction breaks down into two parts, the parasympathetic component, which we also dub rest and digest, and then the sympathetic component, which is fight-or-flight, which is the exciting one. And when you have something very exciting happen to you or very scary happen to you, you strongly activate that system. That system uses the nerve transmitter and hormone signal adrenaline and its chemical relative noradrenaline. And this leads to very high levels of adrenaline in the bloodstream and noradrenaline and also the secretion onto various end organs of both of those signals. And the result of that is that your heart beats faster, your blood pressure goes up, you breathe faster, you open your pupils so that you can let more light in and and see more but that can have the effect of making your vision blurry which is why some people feel uh, that they they feel a bit disorientated and the fast breathing can make you feel a little bit light-headed and also because if you want to run away you don't want to be worrying about digesting your dinner so you shut down your intestines you turn off the activity in your guts and this relaxes all the muscles in your Inter- internal viscera and they sink because normally everything is is busy munching up your dinner and if you turn off the muscle supply they just relax and mm. sag and that sinking twitching sensation inside when we feel a burst of excitement or terror is that happening now of course when we're destined to find the person we want to spend the rest of our lives with and, and ask to marry it's it, you know take it from a guy who's done this and and um, was pretty confident in what the outcome was going to be but didn't know for sure it is pretty scary when you have to say that to somebody do you want to marry me and or you know will you go out with me and as a result you get all of the activation of your sympathetic nervous system the deactivation of your parasympathetic nervous system and you get that sensation in your tummy and it's your autonomic nervous system doing that for you and if you're feeling that it means that this must be really important to you because it's sufficiently important to make you feel sufficiently excited inside that that's all happening so the answer is you, you probably do want to pop the question to that person if they make you feel like that Wow. Anybody, if, uh, if my wife asks me, what do you mean you're in love with me? I'm going to play her just this. This is what I mean, darling. Monday to Friday, Monday to Friday. 9 a.m. till 12 p.m. This is Today with Kino Kamis on Cape Talk. And you're joined by the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. Let's go straight to your questions. Thanks for being patient there, Martin in Ottery. Please hit us with your Kino. question. Hi there, Kino. Um, Hi. Does Vidiga kill the coronavirus? Because I know that WHO says bleach and other stuff, but I want a natural product that I can put on fruit and vegetables. So vinegar, I need to know that kills the coronavirus. Thanks. Things that'll kill the coronavirus. Sorry, your line's a bit muffled. Is that what you were saying? Sorry, yes. I just need to know. Vinegar. Vinegar. Okay, vinegar, vinegar if that will kill the coronavirus. Chris? Hi, Martin. The coronavirus is what we call an enveloped virus. So if you were to look at this down a microscope, what you would see is that the virus particle has got an oily bag, the membrane, around the outside of the virus. And that oily bag is easily disrupted by detergents and alcohol. So what you could do is rather than add vinegar, which has a much stronger flavour and is going to leave a a, a residue on your fruits and vegetables and might therefore affect flavour, you could use a solution of, say, 70% alcohol. That will all evaporate and it will leave no residue and it won't affect the flavour. And that sort of concentration, if wiped over a surface, very quickly going to dismantle and destroy any coronaviruses without damaging your food. That's what I would do. That'll be pure alcohol and not straw rum, right? Which is uh, 80% <laughs> well, you, alcohol. You, you could use that, but the point is that if you use 70% alcohol where you dilute it in water, A, it's going to be a bit cheaper, mm. but it won't leave any 
residue that's going to be flavoured. So as a result, you're not going to impart any kind of flavouring change. Whereas the vinegar, you know, if if you've got an apple or something, it might not taste too good if it's had vinegar Mm. all over it because the apples turn vinegary when they go off, don't they? Yes, they do indeed. Uh, Let's go to Paul. Paul in Durbanville. Hi there, Paul. Hi, hi, uh, Kino. Hi, Dr. Chris. Hi, Paul. Um, I'm glad you finally answered my cold question. I've been hey. waiting a while. But, <laughs> did you like um, the answer, Paul? <laughs> I did. I, I was amazed that it's a 70 carat diamond, actually. It's quite, quite remarkable how large that diamond actually turned out to be. Wow. Um, second time I've given you homework, actually. But <laughs> let's, stick, let's stick with diamonds. What is the essential difference between a diamond and a tanzanite, besides the fact that I, I understand tanzanites are much more rare and I understand more valuable? Is their makeup different, or is it the same? Are they made the same way in nature? Thanks, Paul. And I must admit, you are going to give me homework again because, uh, again, again, <laughs> because I need to check. I don't know the answer to that question, so that's another one. You'll have to tune in next week, Paul. Do you see what we're doing here? This is a good way to hold on to all our faithful yeah. listeners because we basically say, "I don't know," and then we say, "We come back next week," and then we make sure you tune in, <laughs> and then we forget next week, okay. and then and then you have to tune in the week after as well. <laughs> I've been doing. <laughs> it's all part of the strategy. <laughs> uh, Paul, great one as all. You should also yeah. phone into John Matham's show to see if you can stump him. So there no, you go. I've tried, I've tried. <laughs> Paul in Durbanville, thank you very much for that. Another question here. What is a gut feeling and why is it that most of my gut feelings are right? More than 90%. I think this is a combination of factors. One is the fight-or-flight reaction point that we were already making, which is that when something exercises your mind in such a way that it makes you feel nervous or alarmed or anxious, it's going to switch on your sympathetic nervous system. It's going to lead to an increase in adrenaline. It's going to produce all those visceral sensations with the rising heart rate, the deeper, faster breathing, and that sinking feeling in your stomach. So if something's making you feel like that, then probably it deserves deeper thought and that means you probably mull it over for longer and therefore you're more likely to make a rational decision rather than an impulsive one. So that would be part of it. The other part of it is that your gut and the viscera around the gut are very richly endowed with receptors which can detect vibrations. And when you feel it in your guts, what actually you might be feeling when you go to somewhere which makes you feel uneasy is that there might be very low levels of vibration in the environment. This is called infrasound, where the number of sound waves is lower than 50 cycles a second, 50 hertz, which is the close to the threshold of human hearing, and, and lower, maybe down below 20 hertz. And if you're in an environment where there's a lot of that, although you can't physically hear it, the vibration sensors in your body can feel it and you will feel it in your guts and that's why people say I get an uneasy feeling in my in my abdomen and so when people go to places that are often described as oh this might be haunted actually it turns out the places that people feel might be haunted or have a ghostly presence in fact that ghostly presence is that the structure of the building tends to amplify or resonate with infrasound and you're picking up on that and it makes you feel uneasy so I think those probably are the two reasons. I've got another one here from Jane, I think it is. There we go. Jane asks, uh, the other day we had a temperature of 32 degrees and my husband and myself react very differently to temperatures. He thrives in the cold. I absolutely hate it and vice versa. What is it about the body that 
creates these different type of tolerances? Well, for a start, men and women do tend to favour different ambient temperatures. And people have actually published papers on this. The reason being that in the modern working environment, where you have uh, roughly 50-50 representation of men and women, you have to build your buildings and set the aircon up differently than in the 1960s, where people thought, well, women are at home and men are in the office. We build offices for what men like. So they've had to have a Mm. think about this and change things around. And the offices traditionally used to have the temperatures set a lot lower. And when women came into the workplace en, en, en masse in more recent years, they said, well, they're not very comfortable with this. And it turns out people have investigated, and women on average prefer the temperature to be a few degrees higher than men do on average. Now, there's a number of reasons why this probably happens. One is that on average, but not exclusively on average, men tend to be bigger than women. So they have a bigger volume than women. Women have a bigger surface area to volume ratio. And as a result, women are probably better at losing heat than men are, so they're going to feel the cold sooner than men do. Also, if you look at the kinds of clothes that men tend to wear by convention and the kind of clothes that women tend to wear by convention, women are often wearing, say, skirts or clothing where the legs are bare. And as a result, you're losing heat through that uncovered skin more efficiently than the bloke who's wearing a suit. And as a result, you tend to cool down quicker when it's cold and you don't necessarily see the reverse being true. So therefore, women tend to say, well, I feel colder in that environment than the men do. So there are differences owing to size and there are differences also probably by social convention as well because of clothing. And that maybe accounts for Ah. what we're seeing here. Brilliant. George in Somerset West. Hi there, George. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I take a um, magnesium supplement because I have a shortage. Now, these things come in three forms. They come in ordinary tablets, they come in capsules, and they come in effervescent tablets. And according to the pharmacist, they all absorb differently. And they also contain different amounts. So how do you know what you're actually getting? That's a good question. Hi, George. You, You don't need a huge amount of magnesium in the body. And if you take too much in your diet, magnesium, which often comes in the form of Epsom salts, is a very powerful... Um, laxative so you've got to be a bit careful with it because if you put too much of it down your intestine once you go beyond the small intestine you can't absorb any of it and it's osmotically in other words water active it will pull water out of the tissue and into the lumen of the bowel which makes everything much squidgier and move much faster in terms of the relative rates of absorption of things i'm not sure exactly what the physics and the chemistry is on this Nothing gets absorbed from the stomach with the exception of a very small number of drugs which are capable of going through fatty membranes and alcohols included in that list in small amounts. But the small intestine is where the bulk of the absorption of these things happens and usually when you put capsules around things you use a composition of the capsule that either breaks down in stomach acid releasing the thing once it gets into the small intestine or gets degraded by the the enzymes which are in the top part of the small bowel Mm. which break down the gelatin on the capsule so by and large you release these chemicals at the top part of the small intestine and then they are absorbed and you can affect how long they spend going down the intestine before they burst open and start to be being absorbed by making the Uh. casings thicker or thinner relatively speaking but most of that absorption is going to take place 
or the absorption you're going to get that's useful is going to take place in the small intestine, most of it quite high up in the small intestine. I don't think that's going to make a huge difference. The the best mm. thing to do is to is to actually, if you think you might be deficient, is to get tested and do a biochemical test and then start on a dose of this stuff and see if it's addressed the problem. And indeed, there may not even be a problem. So it's always worth, if you think you have a severe yep. problem, getting it tested, taking the taking the pill, get retested and see if it's working. Perfect. Well, George, thank you for the question. Dr. Chris Smith, thank you for all those fabulous answers. Pleasure. I'm glad you got some homework. So next week, we'll see if we can get some answers. So, Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist there, you must have a fabulous weekend. And you. Thanks, Kino. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.